So we're going to do eight chapters this morning. We're going to attempt to do eight chapters this morning. Alex preached 13 and 14 last week. And if you take the whole section, 13 to 23, you have 10 oracles or 10 declarations to the nations. Now, if you've been here with us as we've been preaching through Isaiah, you know that up until this point, it's been the, the word here in Isaiah has been directed towards the church. What I've been saying is the people gathered inside the walls. In these 10 oracles, he's addressing the surrounding nations, those outside the four walls. And Isaiah's big point is really what Alex's sermon title was last week, that God is sovereign over all the nations. Or another way that we could put it is this. It's, it's Isaiah saying to us, look at that nation, look at that nation, look at that nation. There's a better kingdom and there's a better king. Isaiah is giving us this morning in our text, chapter 15 to 23, he's giving us a vision of self. I believe we're to, to look at ourselves this morning. He's giving us a vision of culture. So look at ourselves, look at culture. And thirdly, he's given us a vision of God, which calls us to then look to the better king, look to the better kingdom. So let's dive right in. A vision of self and a call to humble outreach. This is really chapters 15 and 16. And it's, and it's Moab. The, the, the oracle, the declaration is addressing Moab. This is the Moabites. And Moab has a gospel. Did you know everyone has a gospel? Everyone has a sort of what they would determine, whether either through the word or the gospel unto themselves. This is the best good news I can manufacture in my own mind. Everyone has a gospel. The Moabs, Moabites have a gospel and their gospel is the Moabites. Their gospel is themselves. They were a savior unto themselves. And we need to see pride, the pride of that for what it is. It's something more than me boasting of my bulging forearms. It's something more than me boasting of my physical prowess. Yeah, thanks, Josiah was the only one to laugh at that. That should have been funny to everyone. Maybe you actually think I'm being serious. Listen, God isn't destroying the Moabites because they boast a little bit about their athleticism or their beauty. God is destroying the Moabites because of their arrogance that we will be a savior unto ourselves. They are self-atoning. The depth of their pride was pervasive. Look at us. We are safety. We are our own security. We are our own salvation. It's more than a few boastful comments that are made. This is the gospel of pride that looks to self for the answers of life. It looks to self for salvation. I will trust in me for my salvation. Now we're street smart enough in our pride. 
We're refined enough in our pride that we would never say what Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau once said. I will not read with an English accent for my friend Sarah, for her benefit. Besides that, he was French. (laughs) What could your miseries... No, I won't do it. What could your miseries have in common with mine? My situation is unique, unheard of since the beginning of time. The person who can love me as I can love is still to be born. No one has ever had more talent for loving. I was born to be the best friend that ever existed. I would leave this life with apprehension if I knew a better man than me. Show me a better man than me. A heart more loving, more tender, more sensitive. Posterity will honor me because it is my due. I rejoice in myself. My consolation lies in my self-esteem. If there were a single enlightened government in Europe, it would have erected statues to me. You wouldn't say that. But do you know that that pride is mine and yours? We're more refined in how we leak out information about ourselves. We are glory thieves to the core. We, like the Moabites, want to be renowned. And so we will defend our name. We will belittle others and exalt our opinions, and espouse our wisdom, and exalt ourselves. For us, it sounds more like this. How dare I be overlooked for that promotion? I'm better than all these coworkers around me. For the teen, it sounds like this. My parents are clueless. I know better. I know the motive of all of your hearts. When you say A, B, and C, I know your X, Y, and Z because I am omniscient. I am a better sovereign king, the all-wise king of the Merwin kingdom. As husbands, don't seek to listen to or care for your wife because you know best. As wives... Seek to manipulate your husband because you know better. And both husband and wife rule over each other. What's wrong with people? What's wrong with this world? Why doesn't the waiter get it? Why don't drivers learn to drive? (laughs) Employer, employee, parent, spouse. Nobody just Nobody gets it like I get it. Or we might say, I don't, need, I don't need to read God's word. Nor do I need to submit to its authority. I am the word unto myself. Self-worship, I am better. Self-exaltation, I am above you. Self-salvation, I don't need you. I don't need your God. 
Love the Lord, I am God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is like it. My neighbors are to love me like I love myself. And the result of all of that pride is chapters 15 and 16. You can read it in your own time. God brings utter destruction to the kingdom of Moab. Just a little glimmer. 15, verse 3. In the streets they wear sackcloth. On the housetops in the squares, everyone wails and melts in tears. Heshbon and Eliah cry out, their voices heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles. Look, same chapter, verse, next chapter. Chapter 16, sorry. Verses 13 and 14. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past, but now the Lord has spoken saying, in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude. Those who will remain will be very few and feeble. It didn't have to be that way for Moab. And it doesn't have to be that way for us. Do we really believe God's word when it says in James 4, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble? Like, is that, is that more than something that you've kind of memorized and, and put it on kind of the back shelf of your mind? And you know that they'd be, you know, probably somewhat true. And it's probably especially true for those people. But do you realize that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble? In the same chapter in James, verse 10, he will say, humble yourselves, therefore, before the hand of God, and he will lift you up. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, says to them, and he, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, Isaiah wants us to get a vision of Moab and see that pride in them, and not for us to stand back and go, yeah, look at the pride in them, but to see ourselves. To respond in humility. And what Isaiah is doing throughout these chapters is he's saying, look, here's, and at this point, here's the pride of Moab. Here's this kingdom. They think as a kingdom, we're all that. As a king, we've got that. We are something. And he's trying to point us, there is a better kingdom. There is a better king. And in the kingdom of the better king, well, in that kingdom, God does what the kingdom of Moab will not. In the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God shelters the outcast. That would be far too low for the Moabites. In the kingdom of God, God offers a place for the lowly. That would be far too humble for great people like the Moabites and we need to see ourselves in this. You see, we're to read Isaiah and we're to read these two chapters and we're to respond. How do we respond? We respond in humble outreach. 
humble outreach. Going to put some pictures up on the screen behind me. And this first one is Tim and I, it's all digitally blurry, but we are standing in the parking lot in front of New Life Church in Alphen and Den Rijn in the Netherlands. Um, this was just this past year. And as I share about New Life Church in Alphen, uh, we'll put some pictures on the screen. I want to take you to New Life Church in Alphen, and uh, I want to take you downstairs to the bathroom. Odd place to take you. I want to take you to the bathroom because that's where they, re- they, they outfitted their bathrooms with showers. Odd that a church would have showers in the bathroom, and odd that here we are this morning, and I'm trying to visually take you there. I want to take you to the bathrooms because they retrofitted their bathrooms with showers about four or five years ago when there were just enormous number of refugees fleeing the Middle East countries. Men, women, and children were fleeing, and in particular, um, well, you heard the news, different places in Europe were setting up refugee cities, and of all things, you probably didn't hear, they didn't make it in the news, but Alphenenden Rhine had a, a tent city, a refugee city, for men, women, and children fleeing places like Iran. The city, can you go to the picture with the, uh, the, cobble, the, the, the street? Yeah, that, uh, I wish you could see that better. You get the idea. That's what the city looks like. It's gorgeous. It's quaint. It's, it's similar in size of Titusville, but it's not similar. It's not stretched out. Like it's all, it's European. It's all centered around a city center. And it's gorgeous. There's no, there's not, they, there's not dust on the ground. It is very clean. And all these dirty refugees are about ready to descend on their city. Many people are afraid. Because certainly in this number of refugees, there would be terrorists was the concern. And so for the city, this being imposed on them, you, you, you are operating out of fear, not faith. Keep your distance. Don't lean in. Well, new life, church, Ab Mirbeek, he spoke here a few years back, um, decided to take a different approach. He decided to take a gospel approach. He decided rather than in fear, lean out. In faith, let's lean in. Let's shelter the outcasts. And let's provide hot showers for these families. And so men, women, and children were able to make their way to New Life Church go downstairs to the bathroom and receive a hot shower and many of them began to come to New Life Church and many of them came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Two years ago when I was there with Aaron Osborne, I was able to meet one of the Iranian men. He wanted to make sure he introduced his entire family to me and in no hurried way, he wanted to tell me about saving faith in Jesus Christ. Shelter the outcast. 
I mean, that's crazy. That's, that's radical Christianity on display. While many people were saying, keep your distance. This is the lowly. You are the outcast. You are a refugee. Informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ came. He humbled himself, taking on human flesh to reach the lowly who is you and I. Motivated from the gospel, New Life Church said, let's lean in. To pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is to pray, God, help us to shelter the outcast. Help us to love the unlovely. It's to look to a better king. Moab was too proud to shelter the outcast or the lowly. It's to look to a better king and a better kingdom and to follow him. Philippians 2 says it like this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's, That's a way of saying, do nothing out of that pride. Do nothing out of the pride of the Moabites. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself Imagine, the creator of the universe humbled himself and became a servant to you and I. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, church, we are the sojourner. We are the lowly. We are are the ones who need a savior. We're the outcast. And so it's the gospel itself that inspires this humble outreach. Ephesians 2 says it like this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. All those things are saying, you're an outsider. You're an outsider. You are a lowly Outsider, you have no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So point number one, we're to have a vision of self as we read through Isaiah. We're to see the pride in our own hearts, and we're to see that the gospel came to the sojourner who is me, the enemy of God, 
Christ didn't keep his distance. He leaned in. This then becomes our driving motive for a humble outreach to the outcasts, to those who society says are outcasts and the lowly around us. Number two, a vision of culture and the longing of a better kingdom, for a better kingdom. Chapters 17 through 21. And in these chapters, the oracles of God continue to rain down. As an example, chapter 17, verse number one. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora are deserted. Jump to verse three. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim. Jump to verse four. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And so out of the rubble, what's gonna go on here in chapter 17 is out of the destruction, out of the rubble, out of the pile of rocks, there will be a remnant people, a remnant people of God who will long for a better kingdom. They will repent. They will no longer, verse number eight, they will no longer worship what they have created. He will not look to the altars, the work of his own hands. And he will not look on what his own fingers have made. Instead, verse seven, in that day, man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. That will take place. That is a remnant, repentant people of God arising out of the rubble. Arising out of the verse 10, chapter 17, verse 10. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. And so this remnant, People of God will live in a culture that has forgotten God. That's a summary of chapter 17. The remnant people of God will live in a culture that have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Does this remind you of anywhere that you've ever lived? You are the remnant people of God living in a culture, living in a society among people who have forgotten God. That's where you live. That's where I live. We live in the culture of the forgotten God. And so God brings judgment to the people, which brings us to chapter 18. And more devastation causes people to begin to think, God's not paying attention to us. Look at 18 verse four. For thus said the Thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling. As if God is not paying attention. The vision of the culture continues into chapter 19, where the people are looking for social and political and economic solutions. A social, economic, and political kingdom. That's what they want. They want a king and they want a kingdom, but they don't want God. And they don't want God's kingdom. You could take chapter 19 and split it up. Verses 1 through 15 is, here is man's kingdom and man's solutions. And then 16 to 25, here is God's kingdom and God's solutions. A better kingdom. 
Even the idols of Egypt, look at chapter 19, verse 1, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. The heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Even the idols, even the hearts are melted before the Lord. In Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The Scarlet Letter, how many of you had to read that? English literature, all right, about half of you. The, um, the Scarlet Letter is a book that's all about the sadness of, this, of, of the shame of sin. In the story, you have a Puritan pastor, Mr. Dimsdale, who commits adultery with Hester Prine. This adulterous relationship produces a baby, which produces disdain and disgust from the community. Miss Prine must now wear the scarlet letter A, representing she is an adulteress. She is to do so for the rest of her life whenever she's in public. It is to be a lifetime of disgracing. Meanwhile, Puritan pastor Mr. Dimsdale never confesses. He is publicly respected while she is publicly disgraced. But privately, he is ridden with guilt. This continues for seven years until he finally confesses rather dramatically publicly. Now what's missing in Nathaniel Hawthorne's story? Answer, redemption. No saving grace in the story. No one understands that public shame will not atone for sin. No one understands that private hypocrisy nor an eventual public confession, none of that will atone for sins. The book is a cultural salvation. Church, there is a better kingdom. There is a better king And he comes to our public and private sin and shame. And he offers us redemption at the foot of the cross where Jesus bled and died for our sins. In chapter 19, verses 16 through 25, we're to see there's this big shift where it goes from, in chapter um, 19, the first half, it's God's judgment. The second half is his blessings. And it repeats over and over again, five or six times, it will say, in that day, in that day. And it's this picture of God's blessings coming to the Egyptians and the Assyrians and Israel. More on that later. The point of these verses is we're to see there's a better kingdom. And we're to trust in a better king for our redemption. We'll just look at verse 20 of chapter 19. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. More on that later as well. We'll now move to chapter 20. And in chapter 20, I just want to warn you, it's rated R. And it's weird. God tells Isaiah to walk naked among the people. 
Isaiah, as with other Old Testament prophets, was to be a living parable to the people. He is a living parable, and the message of the parable is that you are exposed and vulnerable. You have placed your trust in people and in things that are unable to deliver. And so what you have, you have Egypt and Ashdod and Syria and Cush and Babylon, and and you've got all these alliances are being made between the nations. So nation A is making an alliance with nation B because the two of them are afraid of nation C. Because nation C is about ready to destroy nation B. So B says, hey, how about we link up? And so they link up. Let's make an alliance. But behind the alliance, nation B realizes we're still going to be defeated. And so nation B goes underneath and aligns himself with nation C. And then nation B and C destroy nation A. Yeah. You are naked. You are exposed. You are vulnerable. You are placing your trust. You are making alliances with man. And you are ignoring an alliance with the king of kings. You make alliance with people who are unfaithful. And the message of Isaiah is to point us, run to a better king who will make an alliance with you and he will be faithful all your days. Listen, church, Trinity Community Church in Titusville, Florida, that is in the America, in America, the United States of America. America is not the better kingdom. Thank the Lord that America is not the gospel. How hopeless would it be if America was the gospel? What's, what's your hope at that moment for places in Africa? What's your hope for India? Is that what we're exporting? Let's export the good news of America, of a free democracy. Friends, there is a better kingdom than America. If America was the gospel, then there is no hope for the rest of the world. The hope for the world is not be like America. The hope for the world is there is a better kingdom and it's not the great USA. It is the kingdom of God under which we serve the king of all kings. Now, I love the USA. I'm so glad I was born. What a gift to be born in America. I love my country, but my allegiance isn't first and foremost to this country. First Peter 1 tells us that your citizenship is held for you in heaven. It's protected. I'm a missionary, not for America. I'm a missionary for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's that gospel that we are to proclaim the glorious king, the glorious kingdom of which if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a part of. Subcategory, you happen to be born in America. Government is not my king. Let's just offend everybody. Republican is not my king. Democrat is not my king. 
Libertarian is not my king. When I say that, I'm saying none of that is my hope. Have we not found out yet how hopeless that hope is? I don't care which side of the aisle you might fall on. Have you not come to see the hopelessness of that king? There is a better kingdom is the point of Isaiah in all of their alliances. Evangelize less your politics and evangelize more your king, the king of all kings. Evangelize the better hope. Evangelize the better king and the better kingdom. Less evangelism of America's military strength and might because the point of Isaiah is all of that might is just a bunch of boasting pride that will be judged. We don't evangelize America's military might. We evangelize the power of our saving God to the outcasts and the lowly of which we once were. When culture is failing, when culture is falling, it's a great time for us to evangelize to the disillusioned because because they've been putting their hope in a man or in a woman or in a government or in a particular political party. They have pinned their hope on people or governmental structures, a form of government. I love capitalism. It's not my hope. Be about, Isaiah is telling us, be about a better kingdom submitted to a greater king than the kingdoms of this world who make alliances with each other and then go out from underneath the other one and make an alliance with someone else. Serve the faithful king who makes an alliance with you and he will remain with you throughout all of eternity. Chapter 21, the start there says, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea This is the oracle written to Babylon. It'll say, what, in verse 9? Fallen, fallen is Babylon. All the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. You can read more about Babylon. Babylon is fallen in Revelation 18. But this phrase here, the wilderness of the sea, my ESV study Bible helps, helps us out a bit with that. It calls this a cryptic verse. I'm like, great, this is, this is difficult enough already. Give me the cheat sheet. Here's what it suggests. The wilderness of the sea. It's a way to say double disaster. The wilderness, the desert of the sea, flooded. It's to say the desert is flooded. <laughs> double disaster Double judgment, double hopelessness, the wilderness by the sea. So then verse 9, fallen, fallen is Babylon. As Alex said last week, Babylon represents the world. It represents rejection of God. It represents the rebellion of God. It represents our current culture. It represents, let's embrace everything the world offers. It's a culture of ungodliness. Isaiah is here pointing us away from ourself, point one, 
away from culture, point two, to a better king, a better kingdom. Number three, a vision of God. The better king, the better kingdom. In chapter 22, verses one through three, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town? And so what's going on here is that rather than repenting, uh, let's look, verse 12. Yeah, verse 12, chapter 22 in that day, the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth. That is, the Lord is calling for repenting. But instead, verse 13, behold, joy and sat gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep. So in the call of repentance, there is this show of joy. He says in verse 14, this iniquity will not be atoned for. Two individuals will rise up, Shebna and Eliakim, both of them will fall short. They are the powerful. They, were, they are the arrogant. They will be toppled by God. It is to say, don't put your trust in powerful men or powerful women. Don't put your trust in their strength. It will talk about all their chariots, which is a picture of military strength. Put your trust in a better king, in a better kingdom. Here's how we're gonna close. We're gonna work our way back through these verses, these chapters, don't worry, it won't take long. And we're going to take a peek at how Isaiah weaves in these chapters for us. He wants us to have a vision of God. He wants us to see the better king. So we start back in chapter 16. We read it before, but we'll read it again. Chapter 16, verse 5. Here is the better king. He is a faithful king. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love. Steadfast love. That means love that will be there tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. For all of eternity, there will be a throne that will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David. So he is the, the king who is steadfast in his love and he is a faithful king. One who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Not only is he the faithful king, but he is the worthy king. Chapter 18, verse number seven. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts. Here comes the tribute. Here comes the worship. From whom? From a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. You know what that's saying? From the nations, from the, from the races, from the nationalities, from all sorts of people, they will gather from near and far, tall and smooth, nation mighty and conquering whose lands the rivers divide because they have come to see there is a better king, there is a better kingdom. He is a worthy king. Not only is he one faithful king, he is worthy king. Three, he is king of grace. Look at chapter 19, verse 18. 
So good. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. Let's read 19. It's so good. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. He's the king of grace. Why do I say that? This is Egypt. Hey, wait, what? Egypt is coming. They will swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. King of grace. Is that the same Egypt that we read about in Exodus? Yeah, that's them. That whole Pharaoh thing. Moses, let my people go. All that deliverance. Go across the sea on dry land. Egyptians chase after them and are destroyed by the Lord. The, 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 the Egyptians who enslaved God's people, yeah, that's them. They will come to worship the king and God will graciously receive them. He is the king of grace. Not only that, look at verse 20. We read it before. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. Praise be to God. We know that savior. We know that defender. He's the savior not only of Egyptians. He's the savior of those of you who have gathered here this morning at Trinity Community Church. He's your deliverer. He is your defender. He is your savior. He is a worthy king. He is the king of grace, saving, defending, and delivering king. That is who you serve. He's the mercy king. Verse 21. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. What, what mercy this is of God that he doesn't just completely annihilate them. You need to go home and read the rest of the story. God could destroy them. Instead, he defends them. He is the mercy king. He's the uniting king, uniting king. Verse 23, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. You'd read that and go, oh, what? Wait, these are opposing nations. Oh. The savior, defender, delivering king will come and he will unite the people. And they will gather together so many places we could read into, read forward into Revelation where the peoples, the nations will gather before the throne of God. All races will be there. All nationalities will be there. We will be united in the worship of our King. 
He's, he's, amen. He's the blessing king, 24. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria and a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people. That's mercy. He's calling Egypt my people. What mercy is that? What mercy is that that he would call you his people, that he would call me his people? Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. And as the worship team, if you would come join me on the platform. He's the uniting king. He's the blessing king. He's the purposeful king. Chapter 23, verse 8. Who has purposed this against Tyre? The bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth. The Lord of hosts has purposed it. He's the purposeful king. In other words, who could decree the downfall of powerful men? Who could decree the downfall of the nations? Well, we'll hear about that in chapter 40 at great length. We'll slow down when we get to chapter 40. He is the God who turns the heart of the king with his fingertip. From Babylon chapter 13 to Tyre chapter 23, God is sovereign in his rulership over the nations and in in, in, in in exposing that and showing us that. Isaiah is calling us to see there is a better kingdom, there is a better king. God steps into our scarlet letter story of our lives. He steps into the kingdoms of this world and he redeems us from the corruption. Isaiah's point is see yourself. See the culture that surrounds you and see God that there is a better king, a better kingdom. Give yourself to his kingdom, to his rulership. Why give yourself to those kings who rule in arrogance? Why trust in the governments of man? Why run to the false hope of money or self or worldly wisdom? Christ has come announcing the kingdom of God is here. Praise be to God. Let's stand together.